Good morning and welcome. Last week at the close of the service, I mentioned to you that uh, one of my high school friends had passed uh, suddenly, found him after a couple of days in the back of a parking lot, and uh, I was to do the funeral and did do so on Thursday. And uh, I wanted to say for those of you that remember to pray, thank you for your prayers. I felt as though God was with me. I was able to proclaim the gospel to friends that had only seen me perhaps party and drink and for the very first time share the good news of the gospel. And I felt as though uh, God was with me in a very special way. There was an interesting twist to the whole thing. I did not realize this, but uh, one of the guys that ran around with my group in high school was a guy named Hutch. Well, that's what we called him, Hutch Hutchinson. And uh, his son came and did two songs at the funeral. <laughs> I didn't know it uh, until a couple of days before, but he was the runner-up on last year's American Idol. Uh, his name's Caleb Hutchinson, and he's dating the winner of American Idol right now. And so the music at the funeral was terrible. Kidding. It was pretty amazing. Um, but it was fun to reconnect with Hutch. He lives nearby, and uh, we've already got lunch planned for the near future. So that was really great. Um, before we get into the teaching of the Word, let's pause for just a moment and let's pray. Father, I believe that this Word in my hand is Your Word. It comes from You. It is authoritative. It is inerrant. And Father, we ask that you would illumine your word through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would grow <clears throat> that we would understand that we would discern the meaning of your word and apply it to our lives that we might be transformed by it I pray this in Jesus name Amen so we're in John 19 verses 31 through 42 Briefly, just by way of summary, we know in the verses leading up to our verses this week that Jesus has been crucified. He was on the cross, and there at the end, I said at the end of the sermon last week, he said as a victor in a loud voice, it is finished, and then he gave up his soul. None of us will give up our soul. Our soul will be taken by death. Only Jesus could give up his soul. And that is what he did. And in his death on our behalf, he paid the penalty for sin for all time for those that would place their hope and trust in him through faith and repentance. And that's how we become a Christian. But in reality, we know, even as we sit here, and I know as I stand here, that that's not the end of the story when it comes to sin. There's still remaining sin that we struggle with. Though the penalty of sin has been forgiven by Christ, 
we still struggle. And to that end, the evangelist at the turn of the 19th century, Billy Sunday, used to be a professional baseball player turned evangelist. He says this, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I have a foot. I'll fight it as long as I have a fist. I'll butt it as long as I have a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. That is the battle that we must wage against the remaining sin in our body, isn't it? But Jesus declared he laid down his life for our sin. And having accomplished the work of redemption, Jesus cried out, it is finished. He, his death was not the death of a victim. His death was one of a victor. He had won the battle against sin and death for all time. Look with me in your Bibles again, and, and let's read John 19, 31 through 37. John 19, 31 through 37. This is how it reads in the ESV. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. What's that about? He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on whom they have pierced. First question that I have for the text today with you is this. What was the day of preparation? At the beginning of our text, it says, since it was the day of preparation. What was the day of preparation? What does that mean? It was the day before Passover. It was the day that you prepared for the next day, which was the Passover day. It was the day that all of the lambs were slain. Now, for 1,400 years, since Exodus 12, God had commanded in Exodus 12 that they would all go and get a Passover lamb. And on the day of preparation, they would slaughter their lambs. They would take the blood from the lamb and they would wipe it above the doorpost of their door. And when the angel of death in Exodus passed over, it would pass over that home. And there would not be death in that home because they were covered by the blood of the lamb. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, John says, behold, the lamb of God. And so for 1,400 years, God had prepared the nation of Israel for this day, for this very day, the day of preparation. And on this day, the Lamb of God, 
died just like all the other Passover lambs, and it must have seared in John's mind. This is what this is about. He is the ultimate Passover lamb, and all these 1,400 years and all these animals and sacrifices all pointed to this. And so, they were in the Old Testament, I've talked about it was shadows. It was a foreshadow of the future. But now, in the New Testament, you have the reality of the Lamb of God actually walking into life, becoming man, and giving himself on a cross for us. And so... Then the question in our text, it's interesting, and we talked a little bit about it last week. I won't talk long about it, but why did they break the legs of those who were being crucified? What's the point there? And the point is, they would break the legs because it would cause them to die faster. They couldn't push themselves up using their legs on the cross, and when their legs were broken, they fell, and then they would suffocate fast. And they wanted Jesus to suffocate fast so that they could get him to the grave and not miss the Passover and the holy day that was to come the next day. When they get there, though, they find the other two are the two on either side of Jesus are still alive. So they smash their legs and suffocate them. But they realize Jesus is already gone. He's given up his soul already. So there's no need to break his legs. And in keeping with prophecy, the Passover lamb, there would be no bones broken. There was no bones broken on Jesus, but they did pierce his side, which was another prophecy. They pierced his side. And so the next obvious question for me, and it has been argued throughout theologians uh, and scholars throughout the centuries is, why did blood and water come out of the side of Jesus when they pierced him? So one thing, if they pierced him, they must have really stabbed him. It wasn't just a lance. This was a stabbing. It didn't break a bone, but out of that poured blood and water. Many have said all kinds of stories. There's tons of speculation, no small amount there. But after reading and studying this, I believe the, the plain meaning of the text is the best one. And what I mean by that is, I believe the author, John, is just trying to say he was dead. He was truly dead. Now, other liberal scholars have come along after this and said, well, maybe what happened was Jesus wasn't truly dead. He was unconscious. And when they put him in the coolness of the tomb, they've come up with this theory called the swoon theory, that the coolness of the tomb revitalized him, and that's what happened. He wasn't really truly resurrected from the dead. He just was revitalized because he had passed out. I think what John is saying in the gospel is he was dead. That's why when they pierced him, blood and water came out, the man was dead. And so, I think that is the clear straightforward of the, of the passage. But look with me now at John 19, 38 and 39. John 19, 38 and 39. It says, 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, and then this is the, the, the tricky part right here, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus, who we saw in John 3, also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. This was common practice for those that had the resources in Jewish tradition of burial. And so they would wrap them in cloths with the cloths being soaked in the aloe and the mirror to try to stave off the, the stench of death. And so that's what they do. But the question that I have from this text is the obvious question. It is this. Could someone be a secret disciple of Jesus? Look with me in your Bibles at John 12, 42 and 43. John 12, 42 and 43. There it says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. It says, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They love the glory that comes from man more than they love the glory that comes from God. It seems that this passage probably is speaking about Joseph and Nicodemus' situation. Let's, let's do a, a deeper look or a deeper dive into who Joseph of Arimathea was. Joseph is found in all four of the Gospels. And when the disciples, the twelve, have kind of disappeared, it is Joseph of Arimathea who steps up into a place that is actually kind of dangerous to ask the Roman official, Pilate, can we have his body? He's called Joseph of Arimathea because that's a place in a Judean town, and it separates him from the other Josephs of the Bible. In Luke 23, 50, you don't have to turn there, but we learn that Joseph was actually part of the Sanhedrin, the council that actually made the decision to crucify Christ. But in verse 51, it also says that he opposed the council's decision. So you have these leaders of the Jewish culture, the Sanhedrin, they're the ones who was responsible for saying, crucify that man. And Joseph is a part of them, but he says, no, I disagree. And we see that in Luke 23, 51. Joseph, it says in Matthew 27, was a wealthy man. How he got his wealth, we don't know. But at great risk to himself, even though the Bible says he was a secret disciple, at great risk to himself, Joseph approaches Pilate 
and he requests the body of Jesus. He does so with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was also a part of the Sanhedrin, that special group that made this decision. So the two men are granted custody of the body, and they immediately began to make burial preparations because time was short. The Passover would be here shortly. And because of that, Joseph actually gives up the tomb that he wanted for himself. He gives to Jesus because it's close. It's close to where the crucifixion happened. And unknowingly, Joseph and Nicodemus' choice fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah 53.9. In Isaiah 53.9, it says this, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. He was assigned with the rich in his death. His grave was one of a rich man, Jesus' grave. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, is the end of Isaiah. Another prophecy confirming the identity of Jesus and who he was. <clears throat> in, in John 12, 32, it said, Jesus predicted that when he was lifted up from the earth, he would draw all men to himself. Do you know what that passage means? When he is lifted up on the cross, it would draw all men to himself. You think about the cross throughout history. The cross is that one symbol that represents all of Christianity. When he's lifted up on the cross, it will draw men to himself. So when Nicodemus and Joseph were kind of being secret about their faith, after they see the scourging and the nails and the cross, and if you remember at the cross, all the things that happened, it was after that that they came to Pilate and Caiaphas and said, let us, let us have the body. Could you imagine what that would have been like to go to Caiaphas or Pilate afterwards and say, could we have his body? And, and them say, bury him with the frauds and the thieves and the vagrants like he deserves. Why do you want his body? And at that moment, at that moment, Joseph and Nicodemus step up and they say, did you not see the darkness that came at midday just before he died? Did you not see that the veil in the temple was torn in two at the moment he gave up his soul? Pilate, did you not see and hear him cry out, it is finished? Who does that? And so he says, take his body and go. Take him and go. These men... It says that they were secret disciples, but in reality, they risked their personal honor. They risked their positions of authority. They risked financial security by protecting Jesus' honor and asking for his body. So, big question. Does Jesus care if we remain secret in our following of him? Does Jesus care if we remain secret disciples? I want you to look with me at Matthew 10, 33 
through 40. It's rather longer passage. I'd love for you to turn there with me because I want to look at it for a moment. I think it answers this question pretty significantly. The question again is, does Jesus care if we remain secret in our following of him? In other words, can somebody be a Christian and nobody really know it? That's the, that's the question put another way. Matthew 10, 33 through 40. I think actually, when I read it this morning, the verses just before verse 33, yes. Read with me at verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, this is Jesus speaking, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. In other words, if you deny him before men, he'll deny you before the Father, meaning you will not experience eternal life in heaven. And then look what he says following that in verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. What? I thought he did come to bring peace. When we read the nativity scene and Christmas, it's like peace and love and joy and peace and everything's great. Look at this. I did not come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I came not for peace, but a sword. What does that really mean? What is Jesus trying to say? At least, at least he's saying this. There will be a division among believing family members and non-believing family members. He is at least saying that. Let me illustrate. When I came to the Lord, I came from a uh, secular home. I was 20 years old. Y'all know my dad was a Marine first, and then he dealt poker in Vegas, and then he worked for 35 years for a beer company here in Atlanta. He was very foreign to the church. We didn't go to church. We didn't even go to Christmas and Easter to church the first 20 years of my life. And we had been planning a trip after my first year in college to go out to New Mexico. My, dad, uh, my dad's father, my grandfather Clint, uh, who I'm named after, was stationed in Clovis, New Mexico in the Air Force. And so my father's high school years were spent there in Clovis. And all his good buddies were there and he had always wanted to take me and my sister and kinda let us meet them and show us off maybe like a parent would, you know. And uh, so we had been planning this trip for at least a year, and we had planned to go for two weeks. And in February of that year, we were supposed to go in June, so a few months before that, I became a Christian. And then I was told about a trip that 
I should probably participate on with a college ministry called Campus Outreach, and they would go down to Panama City Beach, Florida for nine weeks, and I could grow in my relationship with the Lord and kind of be in a greenhouse environment instead of going back home that summer. I should do that. With my story being what it was, I knew going home would mean reconnecting with all my old party buddies, and so I thought, I really need to go to this summer project. That would be good for me. So I came home, and I told my father, Dad, I, I can't go to New Mexico with you, and uh, I need to do this for my spiritual life. And, of course, he, had, he didn't have ears to hear that. It was like, what are, you, what are you talking about, your spiritual life? You can pray if you want while we go on the trip. You can read your Bible in the car. You know, that was kind of the way he reacted to it. I said, no, no, this is really important. I need to do this. And uh, so when I told him all of that, he was deeply, deeply disappointed in my decision. He actually called me a couple of weeks later back at school and said, I didn't I have a car at the time. He said, I'll buy you a new car and make the payments for you during the year if you'll go on this trip. That was really tempting. I said, what kind of car? No. <laughs> no. I said, Dad, I, I can't. I can't. I've got to do this in my, for my walk with the Lord. That doesn't mean anything to him. Again, anger, disappointment. And to be honest, the decision drove a wedge into my relationship with my father that lasted for years. He would make snarky comments about my newfound faith, and he was clearly not a fan. As a son, all I ever really wanted was to please my father. And I knew my faith was not pleasing. But I walked in that, and I lived in that for several years. Just disappointment on his part. Remember what our text said? If you cannot love me more than your father or mother, you can't be my disciple. There are times when even a good thing like family can be the thing that keeps us from the Lord in a situation like what I described. Another situation that would be very similar to that would be in Muslim cultures today. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, they can then, and often do, completely disown you from the family. And they will disconnect from you for the rest of your life until you perhaps come back. And so, it is a great challenge. Are we willing to die to ourselves and our family's desires to follow Christ? Are you willing to treasure Him above all other things. That's the mark of a true follower of Christ. This week, many told me that, you know, as long as you have a moment in your life where you prayed a prayer, it doesn't matter how you live the rest of your life. As long as you had this moment, I had another Baptist pastor say that to me even at the funeral. 
And I said, I have to disagree. James, the brother of Jesus, says, faith without works is dead. That if you say you became a Christian when you were 12, but the rest of your life you, you I won't say, you abused life and others and there was nothing in your life whatsoever that resembled knowing the Lord I would have to say what James says faith without works is dead that if a person truly knows the Lord that means the spirit of God has entered into them and he begins to transform them from the inside out and so they just do works as a byproduct of what God has done in their soul good works flow from a heart that truly knows the Lord that's how that works and that's why James said faith without works isn't really faith at all it's a, it's a false faith so American Christians you know I read in a, a Christianity Today this last week an article on proclaiming the gospel instead of sharing the gospel What's the difference between sharing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel? And in the article it says, American Christians talk about sharing the gospel like it's something you do with someone that wants to be shared with. Almost like kids playing Legos. I have Legos, do you want to play? And the other kid says, yeah, I'd love to play. The problem is that the gospel in its message is offensive and that it calls out our sinful rebellious hearts and so people don't want to share in that kind of conversation so sharing the gospel isn't probably a great word proclaiming the gospel is a better word for it because we should proclaim the truth of the gospel it's inevitable you're going to offend somebody are you willing, remember this passage, a secret disciple. Are you willing to offend someone to identify with Christ and to proclaim the gospel? Probably one of the biggest reasons we do not share the truth of the gospel with people more often is we're scared. And that's what this text is saying. They were secret disciples. Fortunately, somewhere along the way, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, probably because when Christ was lifted up on the cross and they saw all that happened, they were encouraged at a level that they would go now and identify with Christ. But look with me also at Luke 9, 26, about this idea of being a secret disciple. Luke 9, 26. This is what the verse says. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. I'll give you a second. Luke 9, 26. Jesus says this. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. There must be a willingness to step out in faith and identify with Christ. Even in a secular culture that we live in today, it's not easy. 
But if you step out in faith and obey Christ, there will be a great joy that comes with that. And God will use it in unusual ways.